0: السلام عليكم rahmatullahi الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله نحده ونستعينه wa ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد والله لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى اله وصحبه بارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا, كثيرا ما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ان الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا ايها الذين امنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala ali Muhammad kama sallaita ala Ibrahim wa ala ali Ibrahim innaka Hamidum Majid Allahumma barik ala Muhammad wa ala ali Muhammad kama barakta ala Ibrahim wa ala ali Ibrahim innaka Hamidum Majid Respectful listeners we as promised today I'll be starting the Hadith of Ka'b ibn Malik For those of you who are reading this from the summarized Sahih al-Bukhari it's Hadith number 1699 the Hadith of Ka'b ibn Malik عنه, which I will be commenting on in the next few weeks is a very famous Hadith from recorded by many authors including Imam Bukhari rahimatullah and the narration we will be studying is from Sahih al-Bukhari Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu an, Imam Bukhari rahimatullah says bab hadith Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu qawlullah azza wa jalla 'ala al-thalathah alladhina chapter of the hadith of Ka'b ibn Malik عنه, and Allah the Almighty, the Majestic His words وَعَلَى الثَّلَاثَةِ الَّذِينَ خُلِّفُوا And to those three whose matter was deferred That's just the simple chapter heading of Sahih al-Bukhari Before he actually begins the hadith So let's have a look at the chapter heading Imam Bukhari rahmatullahi says Chapter of the hadith of Ka'b ibn Malik And the statement of Allah, the Almighty, the Majestic He includes part of a verse of Surah al-Tawbah I'll explain all of this in detail. Ka'b ibn Malik anhu was one of the Ansari companions and he relates a very long hadith, the one which we will be studying, in relation to his remaining behind and failing to join the Prophet in one of his most famous And critical expeditions The Ghzwah The campaign of Tabuk (coughs) This is what the hadith is about It's not so much about the campaign of Tabuk itself But rather Although it's connected It's more about Ka'bun Malik His own narrative His own story, his experience His feelings His failure to join the Prophet His Repentance and remorse for this And Allah delaying his The acceptance of his repentance And then his ultimate redemption So this is what the story is about Gab ibn Malik radiyallahu Let me say a bit about Gab ibn Malik anhu, himself Gab ibn Malik radiyallahu was one of those companions who wasn't from Mecca originally, but he was an Ansari companion from Medina, from the tribe of Khazraj. Even before the Hijrah, when the Prophet was met by a number of people from Medina to, who responded positively to his call. One year, the Prophet wasallam on the occasion of Hajj, met six of them. The following year, they brought six others, there were twelve of them. Then, in the third year, approximately 75 companions. Mostly men, some women, came from Medina on the occasion of Hajj. And on this, on this occasion, they all gave bay'ah to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa And this was done near a protruding rock known as Al-Aqba. And this night came to be... It was done at night in the secrecy and the darkness of the night, out of fear of the Quraysh. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa was still in Mecca. It was before the hijrah. He was in the hajj season. And that famous bay'ah, Is known as Bay'atul Laylatil Aqaba, who Bay'atul Aqaba, the Pledge of Aqaba. It was a watershed because then the Prophet resolved after that Pledge of Allegiance and after that assurance from the people of Medina that they would protect him and assist him and support him. After that, he resolved to emigrate to Medina and leave Mecca. And he began sending the companions in order to establish himself in the city of Medina, which at that time was known as Yathrib. So Ka'b ibn Malik, radiyallahu and he was one of those 75 people who gave bay'ah to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam on that occasion. And he prided himself on this. For him, this was a badge of honor, which he actually preferred over the badge of honor... Of being a participant in the Battle of Badr. Even though he didn't participate in the Battle of Badr. But he says that although people regard the veterans of Badr in a greater light. And they consider their participation in the Battle of Badr to be truly meritorious and a great badge of honour. For me, I would not trade anything with the honor of having been one of those people who gave bay'ah to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam oh. in the night of Aqaba. So he embraced Islam even before the hijrah. But he was from Medina, from the, two, from the tribe of Khazraj, one of the two main tribes of Medina as I've mentioned before, Osim Khazraj. When the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam arrived in Medina, he was one of those who received him well. And at the time of the Bay'ah, he was approximately 25 years of age. So, when the Prophet ﷺ arrived in Medina, he was 25, 26. He fully supported the Messenger ﷺ from the very outset. However, he didn't participate in the Battle of Badr. But in the third year of Hijrah, in the Battle of Uhud, he played a prominent role. And this was the first battle in which he accompanied the messenger, sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And in fact, he played a very important role in a number of aspects. One, on the day of the battle of Uhud, Abu Sufyan, being the leader of the Quraysh, who marched at the head of a 3,000 army, He tried to convince the Ansar of Medina to withdraw from this fight. On the understanding that this is a quarrel between the Quraysh. We the Quraysh, we only have a quarrel with some of the members of our tribe, Muhammad and his companions, who have fled from Mecca and harassed our caravans and fought us in the Battle of Badr. So, our quarrel is with Muhammad and his companions, the emigrants. Our quarrel is not from the indigenous population of Medina, the Ansar. Therefore, Abu Sufyan, as part of his ploy on that day of Uhud, he tried to convince some of the Ansar to withdraw from the battle, to detach themselves, and leave the Quraysh and the emigrants to battle it out with each other. Abu Sufyan's plea on that occasion could have met with some sympathy. But Qabul Numarik radiallahu and stepped in. And the role he played was primarily because he was a poet. In fact, over the years, the Prophet wasalam, had three laureate poets, royal poets that he himself would had appointed, had chosen and selected and they would defend the honor of the Prophet and compose spontaneously and impromptu compose poetry on his behalf defending his honor and attacking his enemies and satirizing them and lampooning them and the three, these three famous poets laureates were Ka'b ibn Malik an, Hassan ibn Thabit an. And Abdullah ibn Rawaha radiyallahu anhu. He was very eloquent, Ka'b ibn Malik. So, on that occasion, he actually rose and he again spontaneously, impromptu, he composed couplet, he composed a whole poem, poem encouraging the Ansar to ignore Abu Sufyan and his plea and inviting them to be steadfast, reminding them of their duty to the Messenger ﷺ and the pledges and the promises that they had made to him. As a result of his moving poetry, the any sympathy that could have been given to Abu Sufyan's plea dissipated. And then he composed further couplets and addressed them and sent them to Abu Sufyan, warning him, about the Ansar's loyalty to the Messenger (laughs) and their refusal to respond to his plea. That was one way in which he played a very important role. Another role was that Ka'r ibn Malik would proudly recollect that on the day of Uhud, when unfortunately because of the strategic error on the part of the Muslims, and in fact, the failure of a number of companions to act on the words and the commands of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam As a result of that, after the initial victory in the Battle of Uhud, the Muslims suffered a major setback. And as a result, they were caught in a pincer attack from two fronts, from the front and the rear. And great confusion reigned on the battlefield. In that confusion... Word spread and this rumor was believed by many that the Prophet wasallam had been killed in battle. Ka'b ibn Malik was actually the first companion to see the Prophet wasallam safe, alive and well. And he was the one who called out to the Muslims, giving them the glad tidings and the news that no, the Prophet wasallam is safe and well. Because he was the first one who actually spotted the Messenger وسلم, and who publicly announced this and made this declaration so that the others found out. Then the Prophet summoned Ka'b ibn Malik عنه, and he gave him part of his armor, his joint, breastplate, and backplate. So Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu actually wore part of the armour of Rasulullah alayhi salatu was salam. And then he fought very bravely, actually sustaining 17 wounds and injuries on that day. He was carried away from the battlefield, wounded. And he feared, and so did the other companions fear that he would actually die as a result of his wounds. But he did eventually survive. So... This was his role in the Battle of Uhud, which was his first battle. He did not participate in the Battle of Badr. And I'll explain that in the hadith when his words come actually describing that. From the Battle of Uhud onwards, he participated in all of the battles with Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and remained a loyal companion. In the ninth year of Hijrah, when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa marched to the north, in a campaign which eventually came to be known as a campaign of tabook. Ka'b ibn Malik, as a result of his personal weakness and a personal failure, he failed to... This was mainly as a result of procrastination and delay and then a failure to join the messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He didn't join him. As a result of which, the Prophet sallallahu expressed his immense displeasure on his return. And Allah revealed verses about Ka'b ibn Malik and his other companions, although they weren't named in the Qur'an. And then Ka'b ibn Malik an repented, and this is his story of repentance and redemption. Following this story, he remained... Loyal and truthful to the messenger Sallallahu alayhi After the Prophet Sallallahu alayhi wa passed away He survived for another four. Uh, sorry, about 30 or 40 years Some narrations say he died in 40 Hijri And some narrations say he died 50 Hijri Approximately 40 years after the Prophet Sallallahu alayhi wa Towards the end of his life he actually became blind Now this is the Ka'b ibn Malik, radiyallahu anhu, and this is a companion that whose story we will be reading. Now, as I said, Ka'b ibn Malik, radiyallahu anhu, was very eloquent, and he was a poet. In fact, he was so eloquent that on one occasion he said to the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, O Messenger of Allah, since he was a poet himself, he said, O Messenger of Allah, Allah has said what He has said in the Quran about poets. For Allah says in Surah Shahra wa shawi rahumul rahun, alam tara annahum fi kulli wadi nyih wa annahum ya ma mala yafaloon. that and the poets the way you would follow them. Do you not see that they wander aimlessly in every valley and that they say that which they do not do this is a very concise and accurate description very succinct description of poets that the poets the way would follow them do not see that they wander aimlessly in every valley and they say that which they do not know because poetry in those days is similar to a rap in this day and age. And just like rap, you could take these verses and fit them perfectly on modern day rap. That the poets, the way would follow them. Do you not see that they wander aimlessly in every valley? And that they say that which they do not do. Because in those days as well, it was exactly the same. What would the poets speak of? No different. Things haven't changed in 1400 years. The poets then, they used to speak of their sword their spear the poet would speak of his sword his spear, his shield his horse, his camel going into battle wine drinking partying his women his allies, his alliances his strength And if you look at modern day rap, exactly the same. Instead of the camel, you've got the ride. Instead of the sword, you've got the glock and the pistol. Instead of the shield and the armor, you've got the vests. Instead of wine, you've got both wine and drugs. So the description is no different, the details are no different. So Allah condemned the sha'ara in the Qur'an. Do you not see that they wander aimlessly in every valley? And that they say that which they do not do. So this is another topic altogether. Ka'ab ibn Malik said to the messenger sallallahu alayhi Wasallam a messenger of Allah, Allah has said what he has said in the Quran about the poets. And he was concerned because he was one of the poets. He was famous. He was a poet even before the hijrah, before he became a Muslim. And he continued to recite poetry for the sake of the Prophet wasallam. So Rasulullah wasallam said, By Allah, the poetry that you recite against them, meaning his enemies, the Prophet's enemies. By Allah, the poetry that you recite against them is equivalent to showering them with arrows. He was that forceful in his poetry. And in fact, the whole qabilah of those, one of the tribes, the whole tribe of those, actually embraced Islam. Because Ka'b ibn Malik, radiallahu an, as part of his poetry, he issued threats against them in his poetry. And when, the, when those couplets reached them, they knew that Ka'b was speaking on behalf of the Messenger of Allah, and he was speaking truthfully. Out of fear of the threats of Ka'b, on behalf of Rasulullah Wasallam, those the tribe of those actually embraced Islam. So Ka'b ibn Malik was extremely eloquent. And this is one of the reasons why this hadith is so famous, the hadith of Ka'b ibn Malik. He was a poet, but this is an example of his poetry. And in the Qur'an, when Allah revealed verses of Surah Al-Tawbah, relating to Ka'b ibn Malik, although he wasn't named, and his two companions... Murat ibn Rabi' and Hilal ibn Umayyah, two other companions who were guilty of the same failure as Ka'b ibn Malik. These three, Allah Azza wa says of them in Surah At-Tawbah, وَعَلَى الثَّلَاثِةِ الَّذِينَ خُلِّفُوا And that's what Bukhari, Imam Bukhari alayhi, alludes to in his chapter heading when he says... باب حديثة كعب بن مالك رضي الله عنه وقول الله عز وجل وعلى الثلاثة الذين خلفوا Chapter of the hadith of كعب ibn مالك and the statement of Allah, the almighty, the majestic وعلى الثلاثة الذين خلفوا and to those three whose affair was deferred. He is referring to this verse of Surah al in which Allah says, th- الَّذِينَ فِي عليهم الارض بما رحبت وضاقت عليهم انفسهم وظنوا الا ملجا من الله الا اليه ثم تاب عليهم ليتوبوا الله says indeed Allah relented and turned in mercy to the prophets and to the emigrants and to the assistants from Medina الذين تبعوه في سَاعَةِ العسره Those who followed the messenger. In the hour of difficulty. (coughs) After. It was close. That some of their hearts may have swerved. Then Allah turned to them. In mercy. So that they may repent. Indeed he is most compassionate and merciful towards them. And then in this next verse Allah says. And this is a verse in question. And Allah. And Two, meaning Allah turned in mercy to those three, أخلفوا, Whose affair was deferred. الارض, until when the earth became narrow and restricted for them, despite its vastness. alayhim And even their own souls became constricted for them. And they were convinced, Allah min Allah, Illa ilayh that there is no refuge from Allah except in Allah. Then Allah turned to them in repentance, in accepting their repentance. So this is the verse which has been referred to in the chapter heading. And when was this occasion? When did the Ansar and the Muhajirun, the emigrants and the assistants, follow the Messenger وسلم, in the hour of difficulty? This was a campaign of Tabuk. So Ka'b ibn Malik, see the words how the Qur'an in just one verse describes their own inner condition and the outer condition of their world. These three, whose affair was deferred, i.e., they failed to join the Messenger. وسلم, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when they returned, they apologized. But the Prophet did not accept their apology. And what was to become of them? What was Allah's judgment? What was the Prophet's judgment? He reserved judgment until Allah had declared his judgment about these three. And Allah reserved his judgment and deferred their matter. So this is what's referred to those three whose matter was deferred. And in that period of their matter being deferred, in that interval, which lasted approximately 50 days, they were ostracized and boycotted by the whole community. Their life their lives, their world was, became such that Allah describes it in these words. Until the earth, despite its vastness, became restricted, narrow and constricted for them. And even their own souls became constricted for them. Until they were convinced that there is no refuge from Allah except to Allah. In just these just few words, they require a lot of explanation. What was their state of mind? What were their emotions? What was the atmosphere in the city of Medina? How did they feel? What were they thinking? What were the companions thinking? There is no one better to describe that to us and to illustrate that to us than one of the three who happened to be This extremely eloquent Ka'b ibn Malik. Now he was a famous, powerful and eloquent and forceful poet. But this is an example, this hadith is one of the longest hadith in Bukhari. This is an example of his eloquent prose. This is another reason why this is so famous. Allow me to explain something about Arabic literature. For those of you who are studying Arabic literature, Sorry, those of you who are familiar with Arabic and especially those who are either ulama or talabatul ilm and who have studied Sayyid al-Hassan Ali al-Nadwi rahimahullah's book al mukhtarat min al-Adab al-Arabi al mukhtarat min al-Adab al-Arabi is an anthology of Arabic literature selections of Arabic literature and his book, despite being an Indian he Compile this book as an anthology of Arabic literature. Selections from Arabic works over 14 centuries. For people to study and appreciate the power, the beauty and the eloquence of the Arabic language. And it's known as (laughs) al mukhtarat min al-Adab al-Arabi. This was so well received that in Sham. May Allah bring peace and stability to that land. In Sham. The, a number of leading Arab men of letters convened a council to choose a book which would be the best example and the best anthology of Arabic literature for students and advanced students across the Arab world to study and appreciate the beauty of Arabic. So actually, these were Arab men of letters, poets, and literary artists. They all came together. And having studied and scanned and surveyed many different Arabic works and collections, they convened a meeting, they went away, and they all came back. And in their subsequent meeting, all of them independently, came to the conclusion, and in that meeting they all agreed that the single best work of anthology of Arabic literature is the work of al hassan Ali Nadwi. And these were all Arab scholars and men of letters. So they all went away, studied, and then they all came back and they agreed that the best collection of Arabic literature as an anthology is... The al mukhtarat Min Al-Adab Al-Arabi Of Sayyid Abul Hassan Ali Al-Nadwi And Sayyid Abul Hassan Ali nadwi What he did is that over the 14th centuries He took selections from Arabic works As Examples of the Beauty And the power and the force and eloquence Of Arabic And in the earlier part of the book From the Hadith He has taken The hadith of Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha, the hadith al-Ifq, which we studied last. And he has also taken the hadith of Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu an. And not only that, but he refers to it in his introduction. And he explains. So from the best anthology of Arabic literature, he provides this as a supreme example of the beauty and the force and eloquence. And the power of the Arabic language. And he explains how Ka'b ibn Amarik, عنه, in this beautiful hadith, is able to capture and encapsulate and deliver in such potent words his emotions, thoughts, and feelings. All as a description of that verse of the Qur'an in which Allah says, the earth had become narrow and constricted for them, despite its vastness. And how their own souls became constricted for them, and that they were convinced that there is no refuge from Allah except unto Allah. So, this this hadith, for those who are able to appreciate the language and the Arabic, this hadith is not just simply a hadith of Bukhari. It's actually... A beautiful example, a supreme example of Arabic prose from one of the poets of the Prophet ﷺ, Ka'ab ibn Malik. This This is one of the reasons why I've chosen this hadith. Now, inshallah, we'll begin. But before we... Well, let's begin the hadith. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم عن كعب بن مالك رضي الله It is related from كعب بن مالك رضي الله I relate this hadith with an uninterrupted chain from myself Imam Bukhari رحمة relates from Kab ibn Malik رضي الله that he said لم أتخلف عن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم في I never remained behind from the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa in any expedition that he marched in. illa غزبة تَبُوكِ Except the expedition of Tabu. So this whole story is ultimately about book. So let me give an introduction to the topic of Tabu. And this is what's referred to in the verse of the Qur'an as well, when Allah says, فِي سَاعَةِ Those who obeyed the messenger in the hour of difficulty. It was the ninth year of Hijrah. Makkah had been conquered just under a year before. It was a month of Rajab in the ninth year of Hijrah. Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam was now immensely powerful. Mecca had capitulated. Many of the tribes surrounding Medina and Mecca had also capitulated and came and paid homage to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and entered into the fold of Islam. Unfortunately, however, because of these stirrings in the depth of Arabia, The immensely powerful superpower of the time, one of the two superpowers, the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine Roman Empire, lying to the northwest of Arabia. The Eastern Roman Empire and the Byzantines, they became concerned of these stirrings in Arabia, and the matter of the Prophet and the early Muslims concerned them. And there was now a constant threat to the Muslims of Medina from this quarter. In fact, this threat was so serious that Umar ibn Khattab mentions in a very long hadith that we remained in constant fear that the Ghassanid Arabs would invade Medina. Now, who are the Ghassanid Arabs? The Eastern Roman Empire had its capital in Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul. And towards the south of Constantinople, especially in Anatolia, in modern day Syria and Jordan and the Levant, this whole area, the Levant and modern day Syria and Jordan, and also the whole of Iraq as well, this whole area was inhabited by the nomadic Arabs. These were the northern, extreme northern Arabs. And towards the northwest, the most powerful of these northern Arabs were the Banu Hassan. Now, the Byzantine Romans, they used these wild Bedouin Arabs as vassals. They used them as soldiers with their independent kingdom. But the whole kingdom ultimately was a vassal of the Roman states. And they used these Arabs as a buffer zone between them and the wild Arabs, as they regarded them, of central Arabia. So these northern Arabs, extreme northern Arabs, some of them were allied to the Byzantine Romans, especially towards the northwest. And the Arabs to the northeast and the east of Arabia, they were allied to the Sassanid Persian Empire. So you had two superpowers of the time, the Sassanid Persian Empire towards the northeast and the east, and the Byzantine Roman Empire to the northwest. Neither of these superpowers ever made a direct claim or ruled over Arabia. But they both had a number of, well, they both had vassal Arab states. And the Byzantine Romans had the Ghassanid Arab state, which was its client vassal state, and they were Christian. The Ghassanid Arabs were predominantly, if not entirely, Christian, just like. uh, And the Sassanid Persian Empire had the Banu Lakhm, the Lakhmids, who were who, who were the most powerful alliance of tribes in the east and the northeast, and they were the vassals and the client states of the Persians. So they acted as a buffer zone, and they were the clients of these two superpowers. Whenever they fought, these vassal states fought with them. So, in fact, before the arrival of Islam the two superpowers, the Byzantine Roman Empire and the Sassanid Persian Empire, had engaged in a very long, debilitating conflict, lasting generations. And in most of those conflicts, the Byzantines fought the Sassanid Persians, and the Banu Ghassan, the Ghassanid Arabs being Roman vassals, fought alongside them against the Lakhmids, who were the Sassanid Persian vassals. These details are important because this is what's referred to in the hadith. So whenever the Muslims eventually faced a threat from the Byzantine Romans, or they actually faced them in battle, they faced not only the Byzantine Roman army, but also the Ghassanid Arabs. And before the Byzantine Roman army, the buffer zone was occupied by the Ghassanid Arabs. So, more often in the hadith, you find a reference to the Ghassanid Arabs. Similarly, when the Muslims eventually fought against the Persians, they fought with them, they fought the Lakhmid's. And in fact, before they fought the Persians, they fought the Lakhmid's, the vassal state of the Persians. So, Sayyidina Umar ibn khattab radiyallahu anhu, says that we feared an invasion by the Banu Ghassan, by the Ghassanid Arabs. And this invasion was such a major threat and remember, the Ghassanid Arabs were they were unlike the Bedouin tribes of Central Arabia. Because they were a vassal state of the Romans, they enjoyed a lot of their wealth. They, inc- they occupied the fertile region of the Fertile Crescent, the Levant and Syria and Jordan. They had the alliance of the Byzantine Roman army. They had their weapons, their armour, their training, their strategies... Except ...their strategy, etc., as a result of which they were much more disciplined and organized... ...and had a much larger force than any of the Arab tribes could muster from Central Arabia. So their threat was a very serious threat. On on one occasion, Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab, radiyallahu anhu, says... ...I had a brother from amongst the Ansar, I was at home, and late at night he came pounding on my door. So I said, who is it? And he identified himself this was the brother that the prophet sallallahu wasallam had made of Sayyidina umar ibn khattab radiyallahu anhu at the beginning after the hijrah. the prophet sallallahu wasallam did muakha meaning he established brotherhood between the emigrants and the ansar and so one ansari became a well one muhajir became a companion, a brother of one of the ansar so this was the companion whom the prophet sallallahu wasallam had selected to be the Companion of the brother of Umar ibn khattab So he says, my brother from the Ansar came pounding on my door late at night. So I said to him, who is it? He identified himself and he said, open the door. Something's happened. So I said to him, what? Have the Banu Ghassan invaded? So this shows that this was a constant and persistent threat on the minds of the companions. That if ever there was an alert or a warning, then their first thought was that the Banu Ghassan have invaded Medina. And one of the reasons for Banu Ghassan invading Medina is that the hypocrites in Medina and the enemies of the messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam they were now becoming very desperate. Because over the years, gradually every threat... Against the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, had been neutralized. In Mecca, Allah subhanahu wa taala, despite all the difficulties and the hardships and the murder and the torture and the persecution, the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and the Muslims survived, and he did Hijrah. And after the Hijrah, again, this was a fledgling community. Surrounded by enemies, in the city of Medina, gradually, bit by bit, stage by stage, the threats within the city of Medina were neutralized. The threats around the city of Medina were neutralized. On each occasion, the hypocrites and the enemies tried every method to bring... Islam to an end and to crush this early movement and to exterminate the Prophet ﷺ and his band of followers once and for all. This was the reasoning in the battle of Uhud. This was the reasoning in the fifth year of Hijrah in the battle and the campaign of the trench. Then gradually after the Prophet ﷺ had conquered Mecca, the hypocrites in Medina were now becoming extremely desperate. One of them was he wasn't a hypocrite, but initially he was someone called Abu Amir. Abu Amir opposed the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He was actually a monk who lived in Medina and he was a man of great status and position and influence and power, a man of learning. So he was an Arab who had embraced Christianity and become a monk. When the Prophet arrived in Medina, he opposed him. The Prophet ﷺ invited him to Islam and spoke cordially to him. But he was very rude and refused to acknowledge the Messenger ﷺ. He then left Medina in disgust. He then went to Mecca and roused the Meccans against the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims. When the Quraysh were eventually defeated, this Abu Amir rahib made his way to Byzantine Rome. And there he began to agitate the Ghassanid Arabs and the Romans against the Prophet Close And as the hypocrites became more and more desperate, since all their strategies were failing, eventually in the ninth year of Hijra, after the conquest of Makkah, they became so desperate that Abu Amir al-Rahib managed to convince the Byzantine Romans to prepare to launch an attack against Muslims. And in preparation for that, he sent word to Medina, saying to them that build a masjid that will serve as headquarters for us in the city, on the outskirts near Masjid al quba So his hypocrite followers agreed, they established a masjid. This is known as Masjid al-Dirar. Which Allah refers to in Surah al Limanharabullahum in They built this masjid, and then they came to the Prophet a whole band of hypocrites. And they said to him, O oh, Messenger of Allah, will you come and consecrate Prayer in the masjid and bless it for us. So, not only did they build a masjid with nefarious intentions, but they so surreptitiously decided to deceive the Messenger and stamp his authority on the masjid by inviting him to pray salah therein. But this was just before the Prophet was about to embark on this campaign of Tabuk. So he said to them, I am on the verge of traveling, I will come to the masjid and pray therein on my return. On his return from Tabuk, when he was close to Medina, Allah Azza wa Jal revealed these verses of the Qur'an. And the verses say, And those who built a masjid, dirara, With the intention of harming, And within unbelief, and with a view to dividing and creating, sowing division amongst the people. amongst the believers. Allah wa And as a place of lurking and ambush for those who have fought and battled against Allah and His Messenger. And they will swear... That we only meant good. They will most assuredly swear and take oaths that we only meant good. And Allah bears testimony that they are surely liars. Do not ever stand therein. So, this was known as the Masjid of Dirar, And they, subhanAllah, they actually built a masjid with the view of making that masjid a garrison and as the headquarters to store weapons and to collect and to create and sow division and eventually to launch an attack from within the city against Muslims when the Byzantine Romans would arrive. So this Abu Amir al rahib also played an instrumental part in convincing the Byzantine Romans to launch an attack and they were already concerned about the Muslims. So the Muslims were also fearful that the Byzantine Romans would launch an attack. And a, and a year before, the, in the 8th year of Hijrah, the Prophet ﷺ had already sent an expedition towards the north. And that came to be known as Ghazwat Mu'tah, the campaign of Mu'tah, where they actually fought a battle facing overwhelming numbers. And the, all three commanders of the Prophet ﷺ were killed. And Khalid ibn al-Walida radiyallahu anhu took command and made a strategic retreat and saved the Muslim army and brought them back to Medina. That was a year before, and I discussed Ghazwa Muta uh, two, three years ago as part of the hadith. So on this occasion now, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa realizing that the threat was growing more and more intense, he decided to launch, he decided to engage the Byzantine Romans and the Ghassanid allies, in a preempt, as a preemptive measure. So he made an announcement to the believers that I will be marching to the north to face the Byzantine Romans and their Ghassanid allies and he summoned the believers to join him and to assist him. Prophet summoned men, he summoned support, he summoned, he invited them to give in charity and the Muslims began to make preparations. Tribes came from out of the city and joined the Muslims. Eventually, when the Muslims left, they numbered more, to, more than 30,000 Sahaba, who in the month of Rajab, in the ninth year of Hijrah, marched from Medina up north. Now, the Rasanid Arabs occupied modern day Jordan and Syria. And that is a fair distance from the city of Medina. To travel in that, through, to travel, to make that journey, to travel in the heat of Arabia, in the desert, across this empty, rocky desert, was a very long and arduous journey. And the very thought of it was enough to put off people. As a result, the hypocrites, again in their desperation, they did not want the Muslims and the Prophet ﷺ to leave the city of Medina and to engage in this preemptive uh, strike against the Byzantine Romans and the Ghassanid allies. So they tried their utmost to dissuade the Muslims from joining the Prophet ﷺ. They would have meetings. They would. Go in groups and con- try to convince the Sahaba عنهم, not to march with them, not to march with the Prophet. They would themselves make all manner of excuses and they would try to dissuade the Sahaba. Allah quotes some of their words and their statements and their pleas and their excuses in the Quran. One of them is, they told the others, Do not go out and do not march out in the heat. So Allah says in Surah Al-Tawbah immediately thereafter, that they say, لَا تَنْفِرُوا فِي Do not march out in the heat. قُلْ نَارُ جَهَنَّمَ أَشَدُ الْحَرَّ Say that the fire of Jahannam is even more intense in its heat. If only, if but they understood. Prophet told the Sahaba رضي الله عنهم, to donate their wealth on that occasion. When he made the announcement, Sayyidina Uthman ibn Affan came to him with a thousand dinars, sovereigns of gold, and placed them in the lap of Rasulullah. Prophet received them. In another hadith, it's mentioned that on another occasion, on, in that same period, Prophet made an announcement on the mimbar. He was standing on the mimbar. He made an announcement. And he said, who will donate in the way of Allah? Uthman ibn Affan, anhu, stood up and said, O oh Messenger of Allah, I take the responsibility of 100 fully loaded and prepared camels with their blankets and their saddles. Then the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa made another announcement. And now he stepped down one step of the mimbar. Uthman ibn Affan عنه, stood up again and said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, one more hundred camels from me, fully laden and loaded with their saddles and blankets. Prophet stepped, another, stepped down another step of the minbar. He made another announcement again. Uthman ibn Affan عنه, stood up and said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, a further 100 camels on, on my name fully laden and prepared with their saddles and their blankets. When he brought his number to 300, and the Prophet was descending from the mimbar, the words of the hadith are, the Prophet marveling at the charity of Uthman ibn Affan And he began motioning with his hands in that manner, that, as we say, wah-wah. So he began motioning with his hands and exclaiming in amazement, and then he actually said the words, "Ma durr uthmana, ma uthmana, ma amila بعد ذلك اليوم." That's whatever Uthman does after this day will not harm him. Amen. And when he went and gave one hundred gold sovereigns, the Prophet sallallahu exclaimed, "Oh Allah, I am pleased with Uthman. You be pleased with him also." Rahman ibn Auf radiyallahu anhu and went to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam And said, O Messenger of Allah, I have brought half of my wealth The other half I have left for my family And I have brought you In one narration it's mentioned that he says I have 8,000 gold sovereigns 4,000 I have left for my family And 4,000 I have given to you in the way of Allah The hypocrites were watching Another companion arrived he was not wealthy so he worked hard in monoration all night long and as as a reward for his hard labor he was given 2 sa' of dates that's approximately 7 kilograms of dates after working all night long and laboring so he brought one sa' to the messenger وسلم, and he said o messenger of allah this is all I can afford. I have worked hard. I have left one sa'ah for my family. That's equivalent to 3.5 kilograms. And I give you the other one sa'ah. This is my contribution in the way of Allah. The hypocrites were watching him as well. When Abdurrahman ibn Auf radiyallahu an brought 4,000 gold sovereigns, that was a huge amount, the hypocrites said, Abdurrahman ibn Auf merely wishes to show off with this charity. And when this other sahabi Allah brought one sa'a, 3.5 kilograms of dates, not sovereigns, dates, the same hypocrite said, what need does Allah have of this one sa'a of dates? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed a verse of the Qur'an. الَّذِينَ يَلْمِزُونَ الْمُطْوِّعِينَ مِنْ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ فِيَصْدَقَاتِ وَالَّذِينَ لَا يَجِدُونَ إِلَّا جُهْدَهُمْ فَيَسْخَرُونَ مِنْهُمْ سَخِرَ اللَّهُ مِنْهُمْ وَلَهُمْ عَذَابٌ أَلِيمٌ Those who taunt and jeer at those who donate from amongst the believers, giving in charity. And those who taunt the others who do not find anything to give except the fruit of their labor. They mock them. سخر minhum. Allah mocks them. ولهُم عذابٌ أليمٌ. And for them is a painful punishment. استغفِلَهم أو لا لهم. لهم سبعين مرة فلن يغفر الله لهم. seek forgiveness on their behalf, or do not seek forgiveness on their behalf of a Messenger of Allah, even if you seek forgiveness on their behalf, seventy times Allah will never forgive them. They were the hypocrites. These were the منافقون. So, they were very desperate. They resorted to rumor mongering, to jibes, to taunts, to dissuasion, to discouragement, to fear mongering, in order to prevent the Sahaba from leaving Medina. Eventually, the Sahaba left with the Prophet sallam There were those who lagged behind, who were... Who had not completed their preparations. Some of them lagged behind, they were the stragglers, they eventually joined the Prophet. Some of them didn't. Others came beforehand to the Messenger of Allah and said to him, O oh Messenger of Allah, we wish to come, but we are unable to come. So, because of their disability, what inability, whatever the case, they were sincere, they were truthful. So the Prophet accepted their excuse and uh, granted them permission to remain behind. One group of Sahaba came to the Prophet and said to him, O Messenger of Allah, We wish to come with you, but we are we have no transport. ...or oh, messenger of Allah, if you can provide any transport for us, then we will join you. The Prophet wasallam said, I have no transport to give you. So they turned away. Crying, weeping, all of them, this whole group. When the Prophet wasallam said, I have no transport to offer you to join me. They turned away. As they turned away, they all began shedding tears. Allah actually mentions them in the Quran. They turn away whilst tears roll from their eyes out of grief and sorrow that they cannot find anything to spend in the way of Allah. When they went away, one of them retired to his home at night and he performed salah. And after salah he raised his hands and he prayed to Allah saying O oh Allah the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam has invited us to join him and I wish to join him but I lack means and resources I am unable to join him O oh Allah I wish to offer some charity but I have nothing to give in charity so here I make my declaration to you any muslim who has wronged me in any way in my body in my wealth, or even in relation to my honor and dignity, who has wronged me, and now I have a right over him. Oh Allah, I forgive every Muslim who has wronged me, and this I make my charity. The next morning, when he joined the Prophet the next day, Prophet announced in the gathering, he said, he who gave sadaqah last night, rise. No one stood up. Again he, he announced, He who gave charity yesterday, rise. So then this sahabi radiyallahu anhu stood up and said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, I offered charity last night. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa said, We'll receive the glad tidings that Allah has accepted your sadaqah. So this was one of those who could not find any transport to join Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa This is why this is known as Fisa'at al-Usra. In fact, this whole campaign later came to be known as Ghazwat Tabuk Because when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa marched, he did not intend to travel to Tabuk. He just intended to travel north to meet the Ghassanid Arabs and the Byzantine Romans, wherever they would meet. He eventually stopped and camped at Tabuk for a number of days and then returned. So that was the extent of his journey. This is why subsequently this whole campaign came to be known as Ghazwat Tabuk, the expedition of Tabuk. But another name of this Ghazwa is Ghazwat al-Usra, the expedition of distress and difficulty. Because indeed the Sahaba عنهم, could not find much Whatever resources and means they had, they had to divide between more than 30,000 Sahaba. And we may say that there were 30,000. But the reports they were receiving of the number of Byzantine forces were in excess. That the number of the Byzantine forces was actually in excess of 100,000. Far in excess of 100,000 on the journey the prophet sallallahu and the sahaba radiyallahu anhum they left on that journey things were so difficult that some of the sahaba anhum say we would share a date between two people and the manner of sharing the date was that one date was shared between two one would take the date and not bite it but merely suck suck the date and then drink a sip of water and then he would give it to the next companion he would suck the date and drink water. He would return the date, he wouldn't bite it, he would merely suck on the date, and he would drink a bit of water. Eventually even their water ran out. So much so that the camels that they were riding, they slaughtered the camels in order to drink the moisture from the intestines and the innards of the camels. This is why even Allah describes this expedition as في usrah in the hour of Difficulty in the hour of distress So whilst the messenger of Allah Was travelling in that manner Some remained behind Eventually the Prophet sallallahu Marched to Tabuk He didn't intend to go to Tabuk But it was a journey towards the north And he stopped at the place called Tabuk Tabuk is approximately about, if you were to calculate it point to point, about 330 miles. But if you were to actually travel and go from a route, and through the land route, it's about 430 miles. But do remember, the Sahaba, عنهم, all the hypocrites, had no idea that he was merely, uh, he was going to stop at the book. All they knew is that he's going to march northwards through the desert. And they said, who is just to go on such a journey? So a number... Of people remain behind in Medina. Whilst Prophet ﷺ Was with the companions. Experiencing this difficulty. And this distress. Those who remain behind. I'll speak about them later. He eventually stopped at the walk. And. It was approximately. A 15 day march. And. Having stopped at the walk. He realized. That. His, his The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi wasallam scouts Went out to reconnoiter And they came back with reports That the enemy is nowhere to be seen So the Prophet Sallallahu Wasallam Decided not to press any further And he camped there Camping in Tabuk Tabuk is near the uh, It's in the northwestern corner of the Arabian Peninsula Very close to the modern day uh, Jordan border And close to the Gulf of Aqaba. So there the Prophet sallallahu camped. When he camped there, many of the powerful tribes from the surrounding region came and paid homage to the Prophet sallallahu and entered into uh, either an alliance or uh, signed a pact and a treaty with him of paying homage to him and recognizing his authority. Even though some of them did not embrace Islam. For instance, the chief of Ayla, which is Aqaba, the city of Aqaba, uh, that was known as Ayla. The chief of Ayla was a Christian whose name was John Yohanna. He came, he was an Arab. He came and paid homage to the Prophet and signed a treaty with him, and so did many of the other surrounding tribes. And then, having camped there for approximately 15 to 20 days, the Prophet ret- began his return journey to Medina. And he arrived in the month of Ramadan. So, he had left in Rajab, the whole of Sha'ban was spent, part of Rajab, the whole of Sha'ban, and then part of Ramadan. Uh, was spent on the journey and then eventually he returned into the city of Medina in the month of Ramadan. So approximately 50 days. So this was the campaign of Tabuk. This is just a summary. I've left out many of the details. kab ibn Malik, anh, despite being a sincere believer, out of his failure to prepare, hurriedly enough, and because of his procrastination, and his unnecessary delaying, he missed the opportunity to join the Prophet ﷺ. And when the Prophet ﷺ returned, on the journey, Allah told him about those who failed to join the Prophet ﷺ. The opportunity of Tabuk was a real test of iman and nifa, of belief and hypocrisy. Many of the Sahaba عنهم, would say that, and Surah At-Tawbah, one of the last Surahs to be revealed to the Prophet wasallam, much of Surah At-Tawbah was revealed before, during, and after the campaign of Tabuk. And in the Surah, the hypocrites were exposed. And Allah condemned them in certain terms, very categorically. Allah disgraced them in Surah At-Tawbah. The Sahaba anhum say that the Surah At-Tawbah <coughs> disgraced the hypocrites so much so that they were unable to show their faces. When the Prophet returned, he was told by Allah on the journey, يَعْتَذِرُونَ إِلَيْكُمْ إِذَا رَجَعْتَمْ إِلَيْهِمْ قُلْ لَا تعتذروا. They will come to you to offer their excuses, O Messenger of Allah, when you return to them. And that's exactly what happened. When the Prophet ﷺ returned to Medina, the hypocrites came to him. There were approximately a hundred of the hypocrites who remained behind. They came to him and they began to offer their excuses. What did the Prophet ﷺ do? I will return to this topic again during the hadith. Allah had already told him and forewarned him. يَعْتَذِرُونَ إِلَيْكُمْ إِذَا رَجَعْتَمْ When you return, they will come to you and they will plead with you, they will make their excuses. So when they did come, how did the Prophet ﷺ treat them? In fact, before the journey, some of the hypocrites decided to play a clever one. So they said, we don't wish to go anyway. But why do we wish to draw attention to ourselves? Let's falsely go to Muhammad And tell him that we have our reasons That we are unable to go So if he grants us permission to remain behind Then we've got his authority And even if he refuses, we still don't go So some of them went to the Prophet wasallam and made excuses Prophet said, okay so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala actually chided him. Afallahu اللَّهُ May Allah excuse you, O Messenger of Allah. Why did you give them permission? Why didn't you wait until the truth would have, been, would have become manifest to you? i.e. if you didn't say anything to them, then these hypocrites would still not have left with you and then their hypocrisy would have become manifest so after the prophet sallallahu returned some of them came they made their excuses and this is the way the messenger of allah and allah dealt with the hypocrites the hypocrites came they lied through their teeth they made all manner of false excuses prophet sallallahu Accepted whatever they said Whatever they said He did not debate with them He didn't discuss with them He didn't interrogate them They said whatever they wanted to They lied They made false excuses Prophet ﷺ Accepted whatever they said And let them go Ka'b ibn Malik He was one of the sincere believers Who out of his failure Was unable to join the messenger of Allah and see how Allah tested him He was a sincere believer And we've learnt of his exploits In the battle of Uhud And his support of the messenger of Allah So when he came He sat before the messenger of Allah Sallallahu alayhi wa And we learn in his own words When the Prophet Sallallahu alayhi wa saw him He smiled The smile of an angry person So he smiled at him but he was a strained smile, mixed with emotion. The Prophet's smile was one of love for Ka'b bin Malik, because he was a sincere follower. But at the same time, he was immensely displeased with him. He was angered by him. He was hurt and pained by him. So when Ka'b ibn Malik came and sat before him, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam smiled, the smile of an angry person. And then Ka'b ibn Malik made no excuse He confessed Prophet told him to go He reserved judgment Until Allah had declared and pronounced his judgment And Allah didn't declare his judgment Allah reserved judgment and deferred their matter The hypocrites, they were able to get away with one single word of a lie Allah knew they were lying, of course The Prophet knew they were lying. Their lie saved them in this dunya, but damned them in the akhirah. But the sincere believers, they spoke the truth and they were tested severely in such a way that the earth, despite its vastness, became constricted and narrow for them. And their own souls became restricted for them. And they were convinced that there is nowhere to flee. On the face of Allah's earth except to Allah. This is the difference between Iman and Nifaq, between truth and falsehood, between honesty and dishonesty, between speaking the truth, veracity and lying, and between haqq There were another group there was another group that repented. Ultimately there were four groups when it came to the campaign of Tabuk. And Allah describes all four groups in Surah At-Tawbah. I'll read the verses, I'll translate them, but I'll leave the explanation and the beginning of the hadith till next week, inshaAllah. The four groups in relation to the campaign of Tabuk were as follows. The first group, Allah describes in Surah At-Tawbah. al وَالَّذِينَ اتَّبْعُوهُمْ بِإِحْسَانٍ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُمْ وَرَضُوا عَنْهُمْ وَأَعَدَّ لَهُمْ جَنَّاتٍ تَجْرِي تَحْتَهَا لَأَنْهَارُ خَالِدِينَ فِيهَا أَبَدًا ذَلِكَ الْفَوْزُ العظيم الله says, and those who were the first and the preceding ones, the early and first and preceding ones, of the emigrants and the assistants, the muhajirun and the Ansar, And those who followed them in a good way, Allah is pleased with them and they are pleased with Allah. Allah has prepared for them gardens beneath which rivers shall flow. Therein they shall remain forever. This is the great success. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions another group, وَمِمَّنْ حولكم من الأعراب منافقون ومن أهل المدينة مرضوا على النفاق لا تعلمهم نحن نعلمهم سنعذبهم مرتين ثم يردون إلى الله says and then there's another group around you من حولكم من those Bedouin around you who are hypocrites from amongst the Bedouin and from the people of the city they are obstinate they are persistent in their hypocrisy you know you do not know them we know them we shall punish them twice then they shall be returned to an even severe punishment that's the second group then the third group Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, there is a third group, صَالِحًا عَسَى اللَّهُ أَن This third group was a group which had, done, which had mixed good deeds and bad deeds. It is possible that Allah will forgive them. And wherever Asa is used in relation to Allah in the Qur'an, Possible means certainly, so Allah will certainly forgive them. Who was this third group? We know of the Ansar and the Muhajirun who joined the Prophet sallallahu The second group, the hypocrites who refused to join him. The third group, who was this third group? The ones who had mixed good deeds and bad deeds. This third group was a group of those sincere believers who failed to join the Prophet sallallahu However, they realized their mistake. So before the Prophet wasallam returned, they were shameful of their failure and of their behavior. So what they did is that before the return of the Messenger of Allah, they came to the masjid. And they tied themselves to the pillars of the masjid in repentance. When the Prophet wasallam entered the masjid and he saw them, he said, who are these? Even though the Sahaba ﷺ were known to them, one of them was Abu Lubabah anhu. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa said, Who are these? And they said, a messenger of Allah. These are the ones who fail to join you. And they have vowed to tie themselves in repentance until you untie them yourself personally. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa said, I will do nothing until Allah grants me permission. So he left them. Then these verses of the Quran were revealed. That there is... And others who have confessed to their sins and who have mixed good deeds, righteous deeds and unrighteous deeds, it is possible, are you certain, that Allah will forgive them? So after the revelation of this verse, the Prophet sallallahu went personally and untied this group of companions, radiyallahu anhu. They were just a handful, just a handful, very few. But they tied themselves to the pillars, eventually after this verse was revealed, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa tied them. This was the third group. So we had the sincere muhajirun, li Ansar, who joined him, we had the hypocrites who remained behind, and who even tried to prevent and dissuade others. Then we had the sincere believers who out of their weakness and their failure, failed to join the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa Admitted and confessed to their guilt. And even before the Prophet ﷺ arrived, they tied themselves to the pillars. Allah revealed verses of the Qur'an, forgave them. The Prophet ﷺ personally untied them. Then there was a fourth group. This fourth group consisted only of three people. And who was this fourth group? Allah says, وَآخَرُونَ مُرْجَوْنَ لِأَمْرِ اللَّهِ And others who were whose matter was deferred for the decree of Allah. They were just like the third group in that they had failed to join the Prophet ﷺ. However, they did not make such a public declaration of their confession and their repentance, and they didn't tie themselves. These three were Ka'b ibn Malik, Hilal ibn Umayyah, and Murarat ibn al radiyallahu <laughs> anhum, three companions. They were just like the third group, but they didn't tie themselves. So the third group was forgiven. These three, their matter was deferred. And this is what Ka'am ibn Malik, radiyallahu anhu, speaks of in the hadith. I'll explain further about all three, all four of these verses and these four groups, and we'll actually proceed with the hadith of Qa'b ibn Malik an, in thorough detail beginning from next week. And so far, all I've done is just one sentence, so I'll just repeat that. Qa'b ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu says, I did not remain behind from the Messenger of Allah in any expedition that He embarked on, illa غزبة Tabuk except for the expedition of Tabuk. And inshallah, we'll continue from here next week. I pray that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala enables us to understand. Wassalamu ala Abdullah, wassalamu ala Abdur Rasooli, Nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala Anhi wa sahibhi Ijma'in. Subhanakallahum wa bihamdik nashadu allah illa ant nastaghfiruka wa taubu ilayk. This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadul Haq and has been brought to you by Alkotha Productions. For additional lectures and products, please visit www.akstore.com. We can also be contacted by phone on 0044 or by email via sales at akstore.com. Produced under license by al Productions. All rights reserved for Alcotha Productions and the author. Any unauthorised distribution, broadcasting or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright.